0: You're listening to WERALP, Arlington, Virginia, 96.7 FM, streaming and on-demand at WERA.FM.
1: And it looks like that.
0: Oh, that's so cool. So so tell me about what you see when you look at that.
1: Well, I mean, I, first of all, I see something that's, you know, uh, that's got a lot of photographic detail. Uh-huh. So one of the things I'm interested in when I do these is recording a scene that's like photographically realistic but that also has is painterly. Uh-huh. So I'm interested in sort of like, and this is something that's been sort of an obsession of mine, I think, in my work throughout, sort of like underneath everything. I'm really interested in the relationship of representation and abstraction, you know, where those kind of meet. So when I was talking about like a giant photograph, for instance, those are so hyper real at that scale and. They're stitched together from tons of information. The files are like gigabyte-sized files, mm-hmm. like three gigabytes each, that, that they look like paintings. Yeah. So they're so realistic, they become unreal. They're Because they're more real than your eye can see. And so I'm always interested in that space where photography and other art media hang out together uh-huh. Uh-huh. And, and meet. So that to me, that's what I see here. And so I see kind of like a painterly, like, like I, I feel like in a way what I've done is paint a scene out of photographic, Detail and information.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think that's actually a pretty good pretty good description of it. Right. Yeah. Coming to you from and around the studios of Arlington Independent Media, I'm your host, Lynn Borden, and this is Choose to Be Curious. Welcome. This is a show all about curiosity. We talk about research and theory, but mostly it's conversations about how curiosity shows up in work and life. So what, so what got me inspired and in thinking about this was this saying that my dad has, which is, if you change your point of view, you will see something new, which feels like... I
1: think that's entirely the job of the artist. and a jo- An artist's job is to, like, you know, uh, get people to see things in a new way. Uh-huh. And then you just work at it till you get there. I mean, this is like anything else. So mm-hmm. people think of artists as like, oh, you know, it's like brilliant flash of insight, and they painting and it's all just sort of intuitive and, and maybe it is for some artists it's not for me and for most of the artists I know you know we have ideas and we have things we're working on and then we just like, you know, relentlessly plod forward working on them, that's the only way
0: Jason Horowitz is an artist and photographer based in Arlington Virginia. His work ranges from intimate hyper close-ups of human body parts to highly abstracted landscapes taken with the aid of digital photosphere technology, the kind used for Google Street Views but Jason bends the software to his artistic purposes, and I asked if we could go along for the ride. That,
1: there's certain things that have to physically happen mm-hmm. for those pictures to happen. One, there has to be something that I can approach, like, in 360 degrees. Uh-huh. Because the, 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 the way that the things are assembled by the software it requires that you look in all directions. It won't understand what you're giving. It won't let you give it images that are all, like all to the north and try to put those together because it thinks it's making a 360 degree view so it needs stuff for 360 degrees so and then also i've learned over time that i need stuff that's that's got stuff up and down because then if, if something that's just like like a human being like standing there then when i aim up there's going to be like tons of just empty sky with nothing yeah. in it when yeah. you think of full 360 degrees in those images so you know, what, I, what I'll do is I, I kind of know uh, just by experience what will work and what won't work. And so it's kind of as I walk around and I see something, going, oh, that'll be great, or, you know, that might work. And then I'll just start working on it.
0: So let's walk and see what we see that sure. falls into that category. I know that Nature, the International Journal of Science, isn't the first place you might think to go with a photographer, but this is my show and my train of thought, so that's where I went. Jacqueline Gottlieb and Pierre-Yves Ouderey's abstract of their article, Towards a Neuroscience of Active Sampling and Curiosity, the cover story to the December 2018 issue of Nature Reviews Neuroscience, reads like a scientific case study for Jason's creative process.
1: Yeah, it's not quite right exactly the right time for the light yet, but it's getting there.
0: In Natural Behavior, they wrote, animals actively interrogate their environments using endogenously generated question-and-answer strategies. We review a nascent neuroscientific literature that examines active sampling policies and their relation to attention and curiosity. We distinguish between information sampling... Which organisms reduce uncertainty relevant to a familiar task, and information search, in which they investigate in an open-ended fashion to discover new tasks.
1: Sometimes I like a particular color. I like this green a lot.
0: We review evidence yeah, that, that both sampling here. and search depend on individual preferences over cognitive states, including attitudes towards uncertainty, learning progress, and types of information we propose that although these preferences are non-instrumental and can on occasion interfere with external goals, they are important heuristics that allow organisms to cope with the high complexity of both sampling and search and generate curiosity-driven investigations in large, open environments in which rewards are sparse and ex ante unknown. Sampling and search... Those weren't exactly Jason's words as we walked around the neighborhood near Arlington Independent Media Watch one cold December day at yeah, dusk. Okay. But they're close.
1: Yeah, to be a Pay attention to what's going on so I can have them appear multiple times. So that's why I think of it as kind of like it's not even though there's a certain level of uh, amount of serendipity going on here uh, which i enjoy you know because i think that you know photographs are always that way even when i was making like photographs with my view camera which is like would have a four by five inch piece of film i had that hood that would go on you make one you put literally one piece of film in the camera at a time uh-huh. and you, you know you, you take a picture and you know ansel adams worked with the camera like that and he always described the whole process from like the start of like looking at the subject so when he had his picture at the end he wanted to be able to pre-visualize the entire picture and all of its tones and what everything would look like when he got done and I, I think that's possible to a certain extent but for me it's kind of even when I worked with that camera and there was this like hyper amount of um, you know information and I had this big screen to look at let's go over there um, that there was always so, oh no let's go down here uh, sorry this is how it works yeah. Yeah. Um, there was always stuff that surprised me at the end I was always like Oh, look at that or uh-huh. I didn't see that or well that and, and, and that's part of also the process I think in all art but especially in photography because there's a certain amount of editing that's part of the process of being a photographer it's like winnowing down from what you started with you take ten pictures of something pick the one you like the most edit out from a whole group of shooting which ones you're gonna finish that you know there's a the whole the the work really talks to you you know
0: uh-huh. so
1: it's like you think you're interested in these things when you start shooting and then later on you look at like 50 pictures you took and you like those three. And when you look at them, they all have a relationship between them that has nothing to do with what you were thinking about when you started. And then now you're like, oh, next time I go out, I'm gonna do that. Because now I realize I'm more into that. So this is, this is, I like this better right here. This is nicer.
0: <laughs> yeah, 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 I see why.
1: Yeah, so this will make a better, I don't know about a better picture, but, but I'm gonna shoot this next. Yeah, this and I'm gonna try the light this like? time. I think okay. we're getting into, maybe it'll be dark enough for the light.
0: And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about sort of how cameras or lenses literally change the way you see the world.
1: Well, sure, because they each one sees differently. So each one sees a different perspective. Different camera formats have different shapes. And so, you know, like with the newer cameras that do 360 degrees that I shoot with now, I mean, they show everything kind of at one time, and then there are other ones. You know, with the super telephoto lens, you only see things that are really far away. And so, yeah, there's like a huge difference in how that choice makes the world look on a two-dimensional piece of paper or screen or whatever you're looking at it on it later.
0: And for you as a photographer, right, there's some cameras where you're, you're looking down as opposed to right. forward? Right. So
1: all cameras, you know, when you take pictures, the light comes in and it strikes whatever the surface is, whether it's film or a sensor. So when, it, when light passes through a lens, it's turned upside down and reversed from right to left. And so some cameras correct that, like so a single-lens reflex camera, which most, you know, called SLRs, they all have two mirrors in them. The light comes in through the lens and hits a mirror, and then the light goes up and hits another mirror and then comes to your eye. So those cameras have the advantage of you seeing through the lens, so that's great. And also it corrects everything upside down,
0: right to left, so it looks correct. So what you see is what you think you're seeing or what we're accustomed to seeing, I right. guess. Yeah. And what
1: you see is actually what the camera is seeing. What you don't see it, that way is depth of field, which you never see when you're taking a picture because then that happens when the lens actually stops down to a smaller aperture when you're taking the picture. Mm-hmm. And you don't see how motion is recorded because if something's moving, then you don't know exactly how that motion will be recorded. But some cameras don't correct that. So, like, for instance, when you see those pictures of, you know, the Ansel Adams types of camera, it's like a view, called a view camera. That's just literally like a bellows, an empty space, the lens is on the front, and the big piece of film, in his were 8 by 10 inches, is at the back. So when he takes a picture, when he looks at the image on the ground glass, when he goes under the hood and looks at that with his, like, looks like a towel he's going under there with, then he's seeing it upside down and reverse to right to left, which some people hate, which can also be a great way to sort of see things abstractly because then things become shapes, not so much what they are, and you see them in a more abstract way. So I find that kind of camera can be an aid to composition. Other cameras also are great in certain situations, Some cameras make a lot of noise. So like SLRs make a lot of noise because one of the things that has to happen is the mirror has to get up out of the way. So when you push the button to take the picture, the first thing that happens is the mirror flips up and you can hear that. And that's one of the louder sounds actually that the camera makes. So other cameras that don't have mirrors or that have mirrors that don't move are quieter. And so I found when I was shooting people at the beach and I really want them to always be paying attention to me, that having what we were talking about, a twin lens camera, where you look down into the camera and you hold it at your waist, look down into it, was less obtrusive for people Uh, than jamming a a camera like this into their face. So the photographer's
0: gaze is not evident to them, because to them you're looking down. They don't know what you're looking at at exactly. They don't know what you're
1: really doing. And so you become less intrusive to them. They they take less notice of you. And uh, it's sort of funny also about cameras and people's perceptions of cameras. So I have a friend who's a photographer, and he does a lot of documentary work, and um, he also does a lot of photojournalism. And, and so he goes out on jobs, and he was taking for a little while a small camera with him that had a very high-resolution center, made really wonderful images. And he was shooting kids, and he was shooting sick kids too and stuff. And he would go to shoot them, and then um, it was great. He took this camera because he liked interacting with the kids with it because it was less of a thing between him and the kids, and also it was less mm, intimidating sure. for the kids. But his clients didn't like it because they, they had cameras that were that size. And so he, he found that people would stop hiring him and that he had to have – if he didn't have a big professional-looking camera that people didn't <laughs> like it. And they felt like it wasn't worth the money then. So then he had to work with a bigger camera a lot of the times. The clients didn't appreciate that.
0: So our perceptions of the camera matter as well. That's really Yeah, exactly. Really and funny. it was sort of weird
1: because, you know, yeah, you think a professional photographer is going to have a lot of gear, right? And so, I mean, I'm making, you know, fine art pictures that are wall-sized with my phone. And so, you know, but there's that perception that if you're a professional, you have a lot of stuff. And if you come up for a job and you don't have all that stuff, then sometimes people look at you and they're like, well, I have a little camera like that. I could do that. So why am I paying you all this money?
0: Mm, yeah. So there's a different, an interesting idea, right? About changing your point of view, your perspective through the equipment. But you also talked about, as a teacher, getting people to look at a space differently.
1: Oh yeah, well, one of the assignments and again it's not my idea. I mean, I was given this assignment in school. There are little things that, you know, art teachers will do to try to get you to see things in a different way. And so one of them is for instance, um, you come for critique one day and, and everyone hangs their work upside down on the wall. So you can look at it more abstractly and be less in less into what it is. And also you know, that idea that, you know, which is kind of a basic art school idea that if it's good composition, it should work like in all four directions. You could turn the piece in any direction. Composition should work. So sometimes you'll go in and the teacher will turn everything upside down and and we have a discussion more about the abstraction and the uh, compositional elements than trying to talk about the subject.
0: I mean, in your perspective, (laughs) in your experience, does it work does composition work no matter which way you turn it
1: most of the time i mean sometimes not but i mean a good composition that's balanced that you know you does the whole frame and does all that stuff that it's supposed to actually theoretically should work and you know just from not again from a subject matter yeah the people are upside down but from sort of just strictly a visual you know compositional aesthetic abstract Sort of way, yeah, they should. Yeah.
0: Very cool. So, what other what other sorts of things do do you or other artists do in that? Well, vague? I mean, the
1: other one that I like to do. Um and that, again, I was given this one in school, so I take no credit for it, is the idea of, of that, you know, anything's a good subject for a photo or for a piece of art, you know, which, you know, goes all the way back through art history to like, you know, the Marcel Duchamp ready-mades and all that kind of stuff. But basically, I'll tell people that they have to make like, and I make, a, the number will vary, 25, 50, 100 pictures, like in one room of their house. Pick a room and make, but they can't be like, here's this bowl further, closer, closer, closer. It has uh-huh. to be different really sort of visually different pictures. And the idea of it is to get people to actually look. Yeah. I mean, you know, people are like, oh, that's really fruit. I want to take a picture of that fruit. And they'll take a picture really quickly and then go on and do something else. This forces you to look around, you know, what's the light like coming in the window? Are there bugs on the screen that would make an interesting close-up composition? You know, what's in your freezer? You know, uh, there's a really famous photograph by William Eggleston of the inside of a freezer that's all kind of like crusted over boxes of food and stuff from, uh, I think it's from probably the 40s that uh, that that's like a f- you know famous photo in photo history. So yeah, so that kind of assignment that makes people really kind of like have to really look and think, well, how am I going to make 50 pictures in here without leaving this room?
0: Right, right. So are there other sorts of things that you, that that artists do that you think the rest of us could be doing that do that sort of change up perspective and point of view or in my language, you know, kind of bring curiosity to the exercise?
1: Um, I mean, for me, it's like, I mean, I I just feel like it's of hard to define that in a way because I think that's kind of what I do all the time. I I think that, you know, I I think that just doing something over and over again, I mean, it's kind of like backwards thinking in a way. But I mean, you know, a lot of times people ask me, well, how do you become like a good photographer, good at composition or or good at photographic seeing, which is really what we're talking about here. And I'm like, the only way is really take a lot of pictures. And you can't just... It's one of the other, I think, troubles that art students have is they'll try to think their way out of art problems and think, oh, how am I going to, what should I do next? And they'll, you know, sit that whole like idea of the artist sitting in you know, smoking and staring out the window and, like, think their way through a problem. And that, you know, pensively, you know, moody artist thing. And, and that really isn't a thing. And it really doesn't work because the only way to really improve what you're doing is to make stuff and look at that stuff and then throw that stuff away and make some more stuff. And, and, yeah,
0: no, that, that, that really resonates. In fact, I had a conversation with a... It was a professor of business at George Mason who wrote a book called The Craft of Creativity. And he said, a lot of creativity is about the craft. It's about... Building a set of skills that you hone, that take a lot of practice, that that you can rely on, that, you, that generate predictable results. But then the creativity comes in kind of the fresh application of those. But you have to have the underlying craft. Like you couldn't be a great photographer unless you had really honed the craft of what you're doing um, and combined it with sort of seeing things with your fresh eyes and, you know, climbing around in bushes with your cell phone um, in a way that other people hadn't before.
1: Right. And I think that, you know, um, if I don't take if I don't like do stuff with a camera for a while, you get rusty, actually. Yeah. Like it, it's not even so much. It's partly the scene, but it's also sort of like the mechanics of it. It's like it's like if you were a basketball player, and you, you know, if you want to be really good at shooting three point shots, you got to shoot a lot of three point shots, so they become automatic muscle memory. And if you really want to be a, a really good photographer, then you have to take a lot of pictures, so that you're not sitting looking at your camera like, "Oh, do we, which is the f stop button and how do I turn that?" You're not thinking about all that technical stuff. That all of that second nature, and you're able to just see and you know follow what's going on and and and. And shoot. There are days when I'm out shooting. Not so much with this project because it's more of a you know, kind of like you know I'm working through each shot. But there were things I did that had moving people, kind of like more street photography kind of stuff I've done over the years. And there were days I would go out and shoot, and I was just like a little behind, you know, sort of physically. But I was like a little out oh, of practice like your or whatever. Was off. And my timing yeah. was off. Yeah, exactly, yeah. like a basketball player. And so I would just miss the shots. I look at everything later, and then everything would just be a little off. The composition wouldn't be quite right. The people wouldn't be in exactly the right spot. They'd be a little further into the frame than I wanted them. And and that was all just kind of like being out of practice a little bit. And so I think there is a level of you just have to keep doing it and keep your practice up
0: so this is choose to be curious do you feel like you have a choice in the way that you see the world
1: no not anymore I actually think from the time that I started to become a serious like a photographer that actually not just sort of conceptually but physically changes how you see I can't go around and not be framing photos and I see everything photographically now And I have for a very, very long time. I'm very aware of the fact that when I'm walking around next to someone who's not a photographer or artist, that we're seeing completely different worlds pretty much entirely, I think, actually.
0: Mm, That's really interesting. And yet you also come up with different ways to see photographically.
1: For for me, that's part of the—I don't know if it's an expression of my, you know, ADD in life. But some artists, you know, have a style, and they— we used that style for like 50 years. And there are artists I know in town who make similar-looking paintings. And I'm like, I, I've said this to friends. I'm like, I can do that for a while. But after that while, I just assumed, you know, go get a job at a Seven Eleven, 11 Let's make the same pictures over and over again. Uh-huh. And that was what we were talking about Aside so when I was doing the um, still-life photos. The whole idea that, you know, I couldn't just... Put stuff on a bo- in a bowl and take a picture of it. It seemed like a, an amazingly pointless exercise to me. If, you know, if I want to see a pic- really well-done picture of fruit in a bowl, there's a billion of them online. I can just go look at them. So why on earth would I want to make that? And so for me, it's kind of like I have these sort of underlying sort of conceptual interests that sort of drive the work that that are my little personal obsessions that are how I see and how I interact with the world. And then when I move from project to project, it's just a different mode of examining those same questions for me or asking the same questions over and over again.
0: Well, and your work has, has kind of toggled between these big kind of landscapes, real vista kind of pictures, and also very intimate, up-close, uh, hyper-enlarged you know, human body parts that mm-hmm. must be, I don't know how many, what X times <laughs> normal size they are. That's also this really interesting way of... Looking at and exploring a very different kind of landscape or terrain, and we think of the human body as its own kind of landscape or terrain,
1: yeah, I think of them all as landscape photos in a way and and, and kind of looking I also think as one of the things I do is like the idea of looking at things closely. The gallerist that I work with we did a show in two thousand and fourteen that was kind of as she called it like a mini retrospective she wanted to do and and the title was closer and closer mm. and so over the years I've gone like you know i I think of it as sort of an examination of. Th- Things in photographic form, and uh, you know, and so it's just stuff that I'm fascinated with looking at. And and again, this is not original with me, you know. And again, I won't remember the quote. It's like a usually famous Gary Winogrand quote about why he photographs. And he said, "I like to see how things look photographed." Nice, so.
0: nice. All right. Well, you have given me lots to work with between the walking and the talking here. Are you game for the big Jar one B out Yeah, sure. Okay. I'm not really sure what that is, but okay. okay. So reach in, take a slip of paper. And I'm going to take one for myself, one for the audience. Oh, you got a couple? Okay, I'll I'll take those. (laughs) Um, Can I open it? Yep, open it up. And on your slip of paper, there will be a word. Mm -hmm. And what we're going to do is make an analogy to curiosity with the word that's on the paper. So do you want to go or you want me to do it You go first so I'll get a sense of it. Okay. I'll get a. So I got mosaic. Mosaic. So I would say that curiosity is like a mosaic because um we often cobble it together from lots of kind of small pieces and fragments of other things um and when we do that we can actually create something that's quite beautiful so that's how curiosity is like a mosaic what do you have
1: I got the beach, so curiosity. I mean, there's a lot of things. I I photographed for the, at the beach for years. I love the beach, so you know, uh, curiosity is like the beach in that there's always like stuff going on and underneath the surface.
0: Ah, nice. Yeah, very good. Okay, <laughs> see, see, not so bad, right? Mm-hmm. And audience, yours is piano. How is curiosity like a piano? Let me know. Hashtag analogy at uh, facebook or twitter whatever so um jason thanks so much for this, this oh, been you're fun. welcome it
1: was fun i had a great time
0: you've been listening to wera 96 7 fm if you joined us late or want to catch up with this or any of the other great shows here on radio arlington check us out online and on demand at wera.fm You can catch all my previous shows on iTunes, Stitcher, MixCloud, SoundCloud, and Facebook. All at Choose to be Curious are on my website at choosetobecurious.com. Thanks to my guest, Jason Horowitz. Check out his work at jasonhorowitzfineart.com. Thanks, too, to Jackie Stephen for sound engineering in the cold. And Sean Ballack for our theme and other music this week. For more on the work by Jacqueline Gottlieb and other insights from neuroscience, visit my Facebook page. I hope you follow me there and on Twitter at choose number two, letter B, curious. And get out! Take a look around. How might you change your point of view? I hope you'll join me again next time. And until then, choose to be curious. Oh,
1: I straight photography. So, one thing you can see online in various books and stuff is um, famous photographs by like some photojournalists, right? Uh-huh. Very famous, like, you know, Cartier-Bresson photographs and stuff. And they have, because they a lot of times had, um, yeah, we can fit this Are you done? They had um, assistants who would print for them. They have like, you can see black and white versions of what you think of as straight photographs of having them manipulated at all, that have endless diagrams of darkening and lighting of specific things which is called dodging and burning in photography, like, like that, that reflection is too bright, we're going to knock that down. It's the shadows, it's dark over here, we're going to brighten those up. So those aren't overall contrast changes, to them. It's those are localized specific contrast changes like you would do in Photoshop, and really, really skilled black and white printers, would sit and endlessly for hours make those changes in the dark room by varying the amount of light that would strike or not strike a particular part of the piece of paper to alter those tones. So when people see those photographs and people give like an extra weight to black and white photographs as if they're in a way more realistic, realistic than, you know, more real and true than color photographs, which are actually, of course, much realer and truer than black and white photographs. And, and then a lot of those black and white photographs have been, you know, manipulated a ton, you know, as far as tone and contrast from what they sh- were shot, how they were shot. Huh. So that's, you know, that, all of that's why I don't think there is really like, you know, a photograph is never a recording of reality. It's just, there's no such thing.
0: Funding for Choose to be Curious on WERA 96.7 FM is provided in part by the Center for Parents and Teens, where families are strengthened through a connection built through positive communication, mutual understanding, and realistic expectations of one another. For more information, visit www.centerforparentsandteens.com. Choose to be Curious is sponsored in part by realtor Christine Hopkins. Curious about real estate? Christine works with clients from around the world, using her time and knowledge to build community. As she likes to say, community engagement has always been my big why. Working in real estate has helped me express that. What makes you part of a community more than living there? For more information, visit facebook.com/slash Nova House Hunter.